Hi, welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on today's episode, I am speaking with Mark Green, author of Remaking Manhood and senior editor at The Good Men Project. Mark and I discuss what has gone wrong with masculinity. Why are so many men suffering under the weight of what is sometimes called toxic masculinity? what Mark calls the man box, and what do we need to do better for the next generation of boys and men? How can we move forward in this cultural moment, united together as the human species and not divided again into this old trite war of the sexes mentality? A lot of people are hurting right now. I'm recording this on the first day of October 2018, and the national dialogue is focused on sexual violence and accountability through the lens of Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court and the crazy day of testimonials that happened last Thursday. I have heard from so many of you who reached out to me to share their stories of sexual violence, to thank us for putting out resources that help us pave the way towards a healthier and happier sex life and sex culture as a whole. And this conversation is intended to be part of that. Both Charlotte and I love men. We have loved men personally and intimately in our own life. We love men as part of the human species. We love individual men, our brothers, but we also want more for men. We want men to feel more free in their bodies. We want men to feel more sexual pleasure. We want men to feel safer in intimate relationships. And we want men to be better to women. We want to end the epidemic of sexual violence and sexual abuse that is just running rampant in our culture. And we know that men are both the perpetrators and the victims of sexual violence. And ultimately, we're just all in this together. This question of how to transform the sex culture we all live in is for all of us. It's for the benefit of all of us. We can all experience so much more pleasure, joy, intimacy, belonging, connection, fun, and yes, wild, kinky, fun orgasms, if that's what you want. We can all do better for and by each other, but only with each other. It has to include all of us. And I really appreciate how author Mark Green talks about manhood, talks about remaking masculinity, and envisioning a future where men are freed from the traditional gender roles of the man box and all of the negative and violent implications that carries for all of us. We begin the conversation by talking about masculinity and manhood and emotional intelligence as a whole. And then we move the conversation towards what is happening right now in the cultural landscape and what we both saw when we watched Brett Kavanaugh's testimony. If you watched the testimony or clips of it on social media, I wonder how it impacted you. But for so many of us, it reminded us of the abusers in our lives. It reminded us very strongly of our rapists. Um, 
when I was watching Dr. Ford's testimony earlier in the morning, my heart was just wide open with compassion and love for my fellow survivors and for the world and hopefulness of what is coming next. And then when I tuned in later in the day to watch his testimony, my stomach was clenched, my heart was thundering, my hands were shaking, I was weeping with rage. And I realized that I was looking into the face of so many of my abusers, of my rapists, and there was a pattern there. And it's an emotional pattern. It's a pattern of communication and relationship, and it is hurting so many people. So we must do better. We must offer all of us, men included, a way out of this culture that is harming so many of us and a clear vision of what is coming next. And that's some of the work that we here at Pleasure Mechanics want to be doing in the coming years is really articulating a vision of healthy sexuality, articulating a vision of gender equality and what that looks like and what it means for all of us and how we will all benefit from it. So this is a longer interview. It runs for about an hour. I considered breaking it up into two episodes, but I think it actually works better as one, but I encourage you to take your time with it. You can always come back, circle back to the conversation. We would love to hear from you about this episode. I want to know your thoughts on this and your experiences that inform this cultural moment. I'd love to hear from you over at pleasuremechanics.com. And even better, join our Patreon community where we can be in intimate dialogue at patreon.com slash pleasuremechanics, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash pleasuremechanics. And for as little as a dollar a month, join our inner circle, show your support for the work we do in this world, and be in intimate conversation with us about this episode and all of our episodes. We would love to have you on board. All right, so here is my conversation with Mark Green about remaking manhood. Mark Green, welcome to Speaking of Sex. Thank you. It's good to be here. Can you get us started by introducing yourself and the work that you do? Well, I have been a writer and an editor at the Goodman Project for uh, about eight years now, and I, I began there as a blogger, uh, blogging about fatherhood, and that uh, quickly morphed into a larger conversation about culture and manhood. And uh, in the intervening years, I've uh, written a considerable amount about uh, sort of the culture of manhood and the, which is sort of the larger conditioning that men deal with, uh, it, well, that boys and men deal with and, and, and how that shapes who we are and how we perform manhood. Mm-hmm. You are one of my favorite thinkers about this topic. And I've wanted to bring you on the show for a while now. But here we are at the beginning of October 2018. Mm. The nation is focused on the Kavanaugh nomination for Supreme Court and the mm-hmm. conversation around sexual violence. So I'd love to start with I'm going to read you a passage of your own writing to frame our conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to start with a broader conversation about masculinity and then move into this cultural moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here is some of your brilliant words. 
You write, in the moment we make the choice to teach our boys to hide their emotional expression, we commit to raising sons who focus not on the back and forth of human relationships, but on performing a narrow and closely policed version of manhood based on the rules for being a real man. While the rules of this man box are highly effective in enforcing hierarchical command and control structures, they suppress or eliminate boys' capacities for connection, empathy, collaboration, innovation, co-designing across difference, and forming authentic relationships. And there it is, the basic mechanism that underpins our male-dominated culture of inequality, We force boys and men into a pecking order cycle of bullying to prove their manhood, and then we never stop making them prove it. As a result, they buy into bullying and abuse as central mechanisms for forming and expressing identity. I've read this passage several times, and I have goosebumps now reading it. Mm. Can you tell us how you became aware of masculinity in this way? Well, I think that um, any boy uh, will tell you that the process of growing up, of being a kid in America, and and I do believe there are differences generationally. I think it's a little different now than it was. Um, but we are acutely aware that we that our standing in relationship to other boys is, is part of our job. Hmm. We have to we have to manage where we are in terms of status. Uh, you know, it, it it it's no accident that we have a culture which is obsessed with you know popular kids and and all of that narrative. But the darker side of it is that we don't we don't simply uh, admire uh, boys other boys for you know for what they're capable of. What we're actually talking about is we admire the boys who are able to win that pecking order battle. And part of winning is to, uh, you know, police other boys around you in terms of their failings or lack of ability to meet the expectations culturally. And the cultural expectations for manhood in America, the, the dominant performance of manhood, is what a lot of people call the man box. And the man box rules include you know, don't show, don't show your emotions with the possible exception of, of anger. Um, you know, uh, men are always leaders. Men are always dominant in conversations. They always have the last word. Men are always heterosexual and, and sexually, uh, active and successful. There's all these sort of, you know, Hollywood movie kind of ideas about manhood that we take very seriously. Um, and the problem is that if you step outside that performance of manhood, uh, part of this man box uh, process is policing and bullying and shaming and getting people to conform, getting them back inside the box. And so when a, when a woman uh, or a progressive voice or another man says, hey, why are you doing, why are you performing manhood by, you know, um, by insulting women? in locker room talk. Why are you doing that? They say, look, man, I've been policed all my life to perform it this way. And now you're telling me to do it different. And that's where that anger comes from. Mm -hmm. It's not that they love being in the man box. It's that they've been forced in for so long that now the rules are, quote, changing culturally 
the con- you know, in 1950s America, we had this cultural container that held this performance of the man box man. It held it. You know, women, for the most part, accepted their second class status. So this man box performance was held by all these other people who were supporting it. Mm-hmm. Now that container is breaking down. It's falling apart. Yet these men are still committed to this man box performance, and it's creating a lot of anxiety and rage for them. Do you think part of that is a lack of clarity about what a new version of manhood might be? Oh, it's absolutely is, because what we're talking about, I think, is a very simplistic uh, sort of uh, alpha male pecking order dominant version of manhood. That's what we used to have. And what we're actually moving toward now is something that has yet to be co-designed. Mm-hmm. And if we are going to move from a culture that relied on women's second class status in order to operate to a culture of equality, inherently that means women have a voice in the performance of manhood, just like men have a voice in the performance of being a woman. That, that is a co-designing, co-created, gender-fluid, much more organic structure for how we perform uh, gender, right? So the fact that it needs to be co-designed with, with across gender is something that men, we barely have the capacity to, um, to, to sort of figure out who's going to do the housework, right? We don't co-design. We're not, we, we've been, we've had that part of ourselves, that relational component of ourselves suppressed by this man box authoritarian pecking order way of being that the idea of equality doesn't come easily to us. So this new conversation, which is emerging and, and believe me, a lot of men are doing beautiful work around this, but it is, it, we, we are, we are essentially, uh, stranded between this older version of manhood and what is coming next. And that creates massive uncertainty for men and uncertainty a space that women know very well, especially mm. if they've had to live their lives, you know, operating, uh, you know, with men's whims driving their lives, right? They know uncertainty. I don't know what this, I don't know what the guys in my office are going to do next. I don't know what my husband's going to do because they're not accountable to me. They don't, they don't hold me as, as having equal voice in things. Women understand uncertainty. Mm. Men do not. Uh, and so this uncertain space, this co-designing space is something we have to grow into and emerge into. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about this piece of emotional suppression? What does that look like? When does it begin? And what impact does it have for men? Sure. Well, you know, emotional expression um, is a marker of something larger. Uh, you know, my my partner, uh, my, my co-author and my wife, Sally Hababa, is a, a couple and family therapist. And she comes from a school of thought about relational thinking. And, this, and, and the idea around relational thinking is that we, um, we create who we are in relationship to others in the process of relating, in the back and forth uh, of conversation, of connection, the moment that we speak, uh, 
that person is changed the moment they respond. We're changed. We change and create in this relational space, which is a shared space. Hmm. Now, emotional expression, it, you know, when, when we talk about relational thinking, a lot of people believe emotions reside within me, within myself. I, I have an emotion. It's in me. And I share it. But when you talk about relationality and this back and forth of relating, emotions are actually created in that shared relational space because it is in response and acknowledgement of the person across from us. So when we tell boys, don't show your emotions, what we're essentially doing is we're limiting their capacity to engage in that relational space to form relationships. Hmm. And the way that we suppress emotional expression in boys, it's, it, um, it begins very early. Judy Chu wrote a book called When Boys Become Boys, and she's, she did a lot of research, uh, you know, and she embedded herself in a, in a pre-K class, hmm. and she was with those students through kindergarten, and she watched a group of boys uh, operating, and what she discovered is that even at that early age, they begin to hide their emotional acuity, their need for connection. They begin to take on this sort of uh, cultural stereotype of boys and men as being indifferent to connection and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, she, and she tells a story uh, that a little boy came up to her uh, after she'd been in, you know, embedded in the class for a while. And he said to her, Miss Chu, um, I'm friends with all the girls, but don't tell the boys because the head of the boys group will find out and he'll kick me out of the boys group and I won't have a group anymore. I won't have a club. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the thing we need to understand about that statement is it, it's not just sad that he doesn't get to play with the girls. That's sad enough. But the idea that a four-year-old child or a five-year-old child is already aware that they need to take parts of themselves, naturally occurring parts, and edit them out, remove them, suppress them. Uh, we need to be a. We need to understand how powerful those kinds of self-editing, self-suppressing parts are to be showing up in our culture, to be showing up in our children at that early of an age. So they already know that if they if they perform manhood in ways that aren't fitting four and five-year-olds are going to start shaming them and policing them and telling them to get back in line. And does that just intensify through adolescence and it gets narrower and narrower? Um, Niobe Way wrote a book called uh, Deep Secrets. Hmm. And in her book, she she's been interviewing uh, adolescent boys for, uh, for a decade or so. She's interviewed boys across cultural, racial, uh, class, hmm. uh, all different categories. And Boys who are entering adolescence uh, in her interviews regularly use the word love. They say, I love my best friend. And the other thing they say is, without my best friend, I would go crazy. Hmm. By the end of adolescence, uh, those relationships are faltering, fading out universally. One boy describes it as, uh, you know, my, my friend Mike lives nearby, but I don't see him that much, my best friend. Um, you know, I, I have other people that I do stuff with that are much further away, but for some reason, that's just, you know, I, I just don't do that much anymore. 
And another boy describes it as my, that friendship is on a crossfade. It's just fading out. Hmm. What Niobe came to understand uh, was that these boys are no longer um, defining themselves in terms of their relationships or who they are. They're defining themselves in terms of who they are not. And the messages they have received are, don't be girly, don't be a little kid, don't be gay. And for them, human connection looks like that. So they begin to, to, to suppress that. And if they do want to have connection, the message they get is, well, get a girlfriend. That's what girlfriends are for. And God help a kid who, who happens to be gay. But uh, long and short of it is, you know, that, that need for intimate connection gets taken into the sexual realm. And all of this human need for connection then gets put on one relationship with a girl who's nowhere near emotionally ready to carry that kind of a load, right? And so the challenges in relationships for boys is they begin to sexualize connection. They begin to make this need for sexuality fulfill all these other needs for connection, which have been suppressed by man box culture. And this is why you get this constant ongoing demand um, for sex and for connection. And, and that's why men tend to mark a relationship, not in terms of the other intimacies, but in terms of sexuality. Are you having sex a lot? Well, then it's a good relationship. Because it's the only socially acceptable way to find acceptance and belonging? Right. And because we, we take, uh, because we overly... Um, What's the what's the right way to say this? Um, there's a there's actually a very uh, there's a quote that I used in an article called "Why Do We Murder the Beautiful Friendships of Boys?" And what the quote basically said is that we over um, we we privilege romantic love love above all other forms of love, mm -hmm. and this is creating social isolation. Right um, when when boys are in these loving, caring relationships with their friends, they meet a lot of, uh, of the needs they have for connection. When we cut them off from that and push them into romantic relationships, that's the only source for connection, uh, that's actually resulting in an epidemic of social isolation for boys and men. And the epidemic of isolation in America, um, in 2010, the AARP did a study and it, they, what they found out was that, you know, one in three people age 45 and older is chronically lonely. Uh, that's 42 million adults. Mm -hmm. Um, this, this man box culture of don't express your emotions, don't need friendships, you know, disconnect, um, all of the things that men are taught to do to prove their manhood, uh, is resulting in this, these epidemic levels of isolation. And there was another larger study done um, this year, which is now saying that one out of every two Americans is either lonely sometimes or all the time. And the health impact of, of chronic loneliness is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So it dramatically increases your likelihood of, uh, you know, cancer, heart disease, uh, obesity, depression, uh, all sorts of illnesses. Uh, your chances get a lot worse uh, in terms of the health impacts when you are socially isolated. So we, we have a culture of social isolation. Everyone's in siloed spaces. 
Uh, this creates uh, distrust of each other. It creates an inability to connect across difference. I think the fundamental issue in terms of boys being suppressed emotionally is that they, they disconnect from their own need for friendships, for meaningful, authentic expressions of self, and they replace it with this sort of brittle pecking order performance of manhood. And in the moment that they do that, uh, they set themselves up for lifetimes of social isolation where all of their connections are friendships of proximity. They're friends with the guys at work. They're friends with the guys at the gym. Uh, they're friends with the other PTA dads. And if their kid changes school, they just drop all those relationships and pick up the next set. And the actual interpersonal, authentic uh, connection between men just ceases to happen. Right, because some people would say that women are just more emotional by nature and like emotional connection more. And we hear all of these myths, but fundamental mm -hmm. to your argument is that emotional connection relationship is a human need, not a feminine need. And it's a human capacity. Mm -hmm. I mean, anyone who, who looks into the into the face of a newborn baby, mm -hmm. see, already sees those relational capacities operating. There's expression, there's connection. We, we have to beat that out of boys, mm -hmm. and we do it. We do it because uh, our, our culture of manhood uh, has this inherent piece, which, is, which says that women are less. And then we take all of these uh, relational capacities, uh, empathy, compassion, emotional expression, we wrongly label them as feminine, and then we shame them in men and mm -hmm. boys. So, uh, so we have this, uh, this history of treating women as second-class citizens, and we take the most powerful uh, relational capacities that men are born with, we label them as feminine, and we beat them out of our sons. And there's a reason for this, right? I mean, the, you can't have a society which is built on inequality unless you take those relational capacities out of men because among those relational capacities is empathy. So, so we have to be able to spend our days saying, sure, women are paid less for the same work. Why does that matter? Mm -hmm. We have to be able to have that part of ourselves that's cut, our, cut us off, right? From, from saying, well, I, how would I feel if, it, if that was being done to me? And we in just, this country, just, this goes back to slavery, right? Like we had to train ourselves to dehumanize mm -hmm. human beings to support that economic model. Systemic inequality is yeah. built on a lack of empathy. And empathy is beaten out of boys when we take away their uh, natural capacities for human connection. And, you know, this lack of empathy becomes at some point willful indifference, Right. I mean, I'm, I am forever, forever amazed that women are not paid as much as men because statistically, just statistically speaking, there are a lot of men living with or married to women. Now, everybody just take a deep breath here and figure this one out. My own wife, who someday I may, you know, if she happens to be 10 years younger and, I'm, and I retire, her income is going to be what I rely on. And yet I don't care that she's paid less. Mm -hmm. it's, it, you have to be willfully unwilling to think about this in order to actually set your own household up 
for less revenue. Hmm. It makes no sense. And yet this is the culture we live in where we actually end up harming our own economic stability in order to maintain this myth that men have more value in the workplace than women. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much thinking you've done about sexuality specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're comfortable, how do you see all of this showing up in the bedroom? Well, I would go back first to this question of uh, where men look for um, emotional resonance and comfort in their lives. Mm-hmm. And if we have set up a culture or, of manhood where men are not supposed to admit their need for connection, where, where the performance of friendship among men is uh, sort of pecking order, microaggressions, humor, sarcasm, indifference, uh, where it's all a performance that I'm self-reliant and self-contained and where we are not allowed to ask for friendship because if you don't already have friends, something's wrong with you. This whole performance of manhood, which is essentially surface level, Mm -hmm. we are human. We have needs. And one of our human needs is for connection. In fact, you know, when you talk about social anthropology and biology, the, the thing that kept the human race uh, alive as a species, the thing that has allowed for the survival of the human race is our social natures. Mm-hmm. So you, you shut all this down for men in their uh, daily lives, and then they begin to look to their girlfriend, boyfriend, lovers, as the sole source of connection at an intimate level, I think this puts a huge amount of um, pressure on those relationships in ways that are that probably can never be fully met. And we have we have so many uh, sort of angry, aggressive versions of sexuality playing out. Um, for me, pickup artists are an example of uh, sort of this the, the dark expression of need for men. And they think that disconnection, as expressed in relationships, is the final key to a better life. But what they're actually doing is taking all of the, the emotional suppression that they've experienced in the man box culture and simply extending it to the last place where after years of trying to find all their needs met in that one space, they're literally burning it down too because mm. there is no solution when you live a life of social isolation, of disconnection, of surface level relationships. Mm. Well. Let me say this too real quickly. Um, we have to understand that that even the best relationship between a man and a man or a man and a woman, even the best intimate relationship, doesn't impact social isolation's damaging effect on our health. And there are studies that show this, right? Hmm. You cannot even, like they did a study in Europe, and, uh, and I can get you this data after the fact. It's in one of my articles. They did a study in Europe, and what they discovered was that the likelihood of heart disease for men uh, who are alone or men who are, who are in a single primary intimate relationship 
doesn't improve. It's only when men have a robust circle of additional relationships that their likelihood of heart disease drops. Uh, and, and so what we're seeing is that uh, these intimate relationships, these marital relationships, as important as they are and as significant as we make them, they are only half of the uh, half of the puzzle of being human. And if we see demonstrable impacts on things like heart disease between men who have multiple, you know, friendships and robust social circles and men who do not, what does this signal about the relationship itself, that one primary relationship? What kind of pressure is it under that men are actually dying earlier when that alone is the only relationship they have? And, and how does that play out in the bedroom? How does that play out in terms of the politics between spouses? How does that play out in terms of the ongoing challenges, divorce, the issues in the bedroom that may constantly be uh, around this sense of dissatisfaction or frustration? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's challenging to imagine the amount of struggle that that couples in America go through. It's challenging to imagine the scope and scale of that. (laughs) This is my work every day is fielding these struggles. Um, And so two things I notice right away from your um, conversation is one, when we put so much pressure on one relationship, and then the only way to prove yourself as a man within that relationship is penis vagina intercourse which relies on a firm erection that pressure all gets boiled down into the penis and its ability to get erect Mm -hmm. tremendous amount of anxiety and then the other thing i notice is the amount of fear of vulnerability fear of being shamed in revealing non-normative sexual desires Mm -hmm. and the real fear there is loss of belonging if i reveal this i will not be accepted i will not be man enough i will not be the right choice for my partner anymore and in a more robust social network, that pressure could be lessened and we would have a sense of normalcy because we're being emotionally vulnerable and emotionally real with more Mm -hmm. people, right? So it's that isolation that then creates all of this anxiety and pressure to perform. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I think this is spot on. Right, and the the thing that's interesting here is that, you know, we, when we talk about, a sense of belonging for men, a sense of connection in the world. Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, last year went and did a weekend with a group called the Mankind Project. Hmm. And, you know, I'm kind of a Groucho Marx guy. I wouldn't be a member of any organization that would have me as a member. You know, I'm very <laughs> skeptical about, you know, men's groups and drumming in the woods and whatever. But, what I discovered when I went and did the weekend with the Mankind Project and is that it's an experience I have never had before, and it, and it went like this. I went into a room with 30 men. Some of us were doing our weekend. There was a support staff of another 30 to 60 guys, hmm. and nobody in that room was, uh, was threat tracking. We were not tracking each other as potential threats. It, a f- 
a guy wrote something recently on Medium, Jay Sefton, and he said that, you know, we're so used to this low-level anxiety that we feel that it's kind of like a, if you're in a city when there's a blackout, hmm. it, it's so quiet. And you don't realize that the constant hum of electricity was always there because you were just used to it. But in the moment that it goes away, you realize how quiet it can be. And for him, uh, this constant low-level anxiety that men feel about being policed and, um, and watched and constantly monitored for whether we're doing manhood right by the men around us, when I went into the Mankind Project space, that went away. Hmm. And in that moment, I was actually able to take in a group of men and like each one of them for who they were, because I knew that they were there to connect. They were there to be as authentic as they could and to connect and support each other's work and effort and needs as men. And we just don't experience this. If you go to a bar and you're like, hey, guys. Three out of those six guys are going to immediately fuck with you. Hey, that, where'd you get that shirt, man? And it starts immediately. Hmm. And you have to figure out, okay, what are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about the New York Giants. Okay, what do I know about them? I got to give some stuff about the Giants here so that I don't feel like I'm, you know, so they don't say, hey, what's the matter with you? Men are constantly feeling this anxiety to, to fit in in a system of manhood that will never let them do that. Hmm. So if you have this idea of, uh, of a group of men who want to make as much space as possible for who we are authentically, this low-level anxiety just disappears. It goes away. And you realize for the first time, oh, my God, this is what it feels like to not be constantly afraid, afraid of what's going to happen. So Sefton also talks about in his work that there's a lot of op opioid addiction because men who may blow out a knee or uh, have back pain who get on this opioid suddenly hear that, that silence. The anxiety goes away too. Yeah. And they realize, oh my God, I have to get some more of these because I, I don't want to go back to that place where I feel that. And sadly, you can't take enough opioids. Uh, they'll kill you eventually. Mm-hmm. But that's why we have an op opioid epidemic. That's why we have alcoholism. That's why we have drug addiction. That's why we have this, these, these huge uh, undercurrents of coping mechanisms for men. And sometimes that comes out as, as a, being abusive to other people, uh, being abusive to ourselves. Uh, but it's this constant uh, subtext of fear that men carry and we're as much as we may have issues with 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 the women in our lives and with uh, with the kind of things we have to do to to fit in for women. It's really men we're tracking. We're really tracking the threat of other men, and we're tracking it in the workplace. We're tracking it in our homes. We're tracking it in our churches because of this constant policing. So your book is called Remaking Manhood. What is the daily work of remaking manhood? How do you see a path out of this? Hmm. It's interesting. You know, the, the new challenge for men is uh, holding uncertainty mm -hmm. and holding anxiety and saying, I mean, for me, uh, you know, at my age, uh, I, don't, I don't think this uncertainty about 
who we are as men will end in my lifetime. Hmm. And men are trained and conditioned to fix, repair, resolve, complete. To, you know, we're, we're, we often can't hang in with an emotional conversation simply because we, we don't know, we don't know how to hold someone else's emotional anxiety, uh, for more than a few minutes before we want to offer a solution. Let's fix this. So the challenge for men now, uh, as this whole resetting of the cultural container happens is to not fall prey to the need to run away from this uncertainty and this anxiety. Because the people who do that tend to run toward simplistic solutions, tend to run toward making America great again. They tend to run toward the past. We want to go back to what we had because this is making me very uncomfortable. Mm. Men need to learn to hold this uncertainty and to accept the fact that the dialogue between men and women, people of color, LGBT, this whole new mix of voices that are saying, we want to co-design what's coming next. Mm -hmm. We want an equal voice. Men have to have the courage to enter into those spaces and speak as equals, not as, uh, as the voices who are going to resolve their own anxiety, because that anxiety isn't going to go away for a while. I do want to mention your other book, The Relational Book for Parenting, because I was looking through it and it has so many tools and exercises and games to start introducing emotional literacy to the next generation. So whether you're a parent or not, we can all be modeling these skills and learning along with our child. I have a four-year-old daughter and the Mm. emotional literacy training I'm doing has been revelatory for us as well as parents. Yeah. Um, so that's a beautiful resource you put together with your partner. Well, those those this question of relational intelligence, this question of being relational, um, really involves uh, understanding that as parents, we're not just teaching our children. Um, we are becoming along with our children. We are they they while we are. Um, helping them become who they are, they are in turn helping us become who we will be. Mm-hmm. And and in it is in that relational back and forth that we grow our sense of how to how to connect, and and we help our children grow a, a number of relational capacities in that process. Uh, you know, teaching and telling and all the stuff that we have to do as parents is is important work. But in the moment that we stop and invite our children to begin to speak into that relational space, to begin to consider what it is they think uh, another child might be feeling, uh, when we make room to, to sort of hold uncertainty for a while in terms of what we think our child may be learning or doing or becoming, mm-hmm. and instead see what emerges, because often the stories we have about our children will direct who they become. And if we're careful not to put those on them right away, but to see what their story is, a whole nother set of possibilities emerge for them. And I will say this about my son. He can carry a complex layered conversation. And I don't fully put that on myself or my, uh, my partner in terms of, uh, of what we've helped him grow into. 
I think it's partially the kinds of conversations that millennials are, are having as well. But I am deeply grateful for whatever influence in the world has made him more of a layered thinker. And nuance and layer and is is crucial to our ability to hold difference and hold a, a, a wide range of ways of being human. We we value it. We don't look for conformity. We look for what is deeply human in each other. Mm-hmm. Well, I am grateful for the influence you are having in the world. Thank you for your work. This conversation, I think, is perennial. I think it speaks to the broader cultural moment we're in. If you don't mind, I'd like to zoom in on this current blip of a moment where we're looking at Kavanaugh being elected to the Supreme Court, and specifically the hearings that happened last Thursday. Um, One of the things I was surprised by was his behavior. Mm. So I was kind of accept- expecting him to come in and be very dignified and speak politely and kind of pretend to be um, worthy of the Supreme Court position. And instead, we saw him come in with a lot of anger, interrupting people, the rage he was experiencing. How did you interpret what happened on Thursday through your lens of manhood? Well... I want to say that this um, this particular conversation about this particular moment politically mm-hmm. is deeply unnerving for me. Mm-hmm. I don't like talking about it. Okay. I don't like having to be public about it because when I do work around manhood, I am trying to speak to a, a wide range of different men. And when I speak specifically about um, the the two parties and the politics of it, I lose mm-hmm. a lot of men. They, they simply disengage. Yeah. Um, but in the case of this particular event, I had to, I had to go and, and take that risk because what I saw in the Kavanaugh hearings was for me a, an echo of the strategies that, that abusers use. And, one of the things that uh, in my own life that I've had to deal with is I, I was subject to abuse uh, as a boy. Uh, and in my case, uh, it went on for about 10 years, maybe longer. Uh, I've written a piece about it, which I posted uh, the day of the Kavanaugh hearings mm. after watching it. Um, but the, the part that, that really struck me most about the Kavanaugh hearings was something that I saw in my own life. And that was that, um, my abuser, which was a boy, not too much older than me, um, was very, very suave and very amusing and very, very, uh, confident up until the moment that I, uh, stood up to him. That I said, no, I'm not going to just accept, you know, what you're doing next. And in that moment, what abusers bring is their most fundamental tool to force compliance. And that is rage. Mm -hmm. They bring that rage and it just it just explodes out of them. And it and it creates this forward momentum for them. And they charge you and they try in that moment to break your will to resist. Hmm. 
Hmm. Our president, our Supreme Court nominee, Lindsey Graham, were all performing the, a version of this rage, and it's a public version. Mm-hmm. Um, and it not only seeks to eliminate or erase the calmer, more measured testimony that precedes it, but it also is a fundamental emotional dog whistle for all the men in America who feel ongoing rage about those who would oppose them. When Kavanaugh does his eye rolling, his sarcasm, and his expression of anger, what he is doing is relying on the tools that abusers use, both to form connection with other abusers, but also to try and erase the testimony, the questions being asked, all of that. And I think that that's what struck me in that moment. What I saw in Kavanaugh, I saw in the eyes of my own abuser when I was young, uh, in the moment that I stood up to them. So whenever you see an actual effective challenge to these people, you're going to see that rage. Because we're threatening their status, their power. Well, and I think it's, I, I, I don't think it's, I think it's a knee jerk, natural response. Mm. How dare, how dare you? Right. How dare you, A, presume to be my equal, right. and B, presume to have the right to speak. Right. And we have to understand that, we have to see that for what it is. We have to see that for an abuser's response. It is not simply uh, an entitled man's response. This is more than that. It is an abuser's response. And when you see someone use that, you need to understand that the likelihood is very high that they commit abuse in their private spaces. Mm. And I'll go out, I'm, you know, sorry, man, that's where, I'm, that's where I came down on this, you know, and I'm not going to apologize to anybody about it. And anyone who's ever been abused has seen that, has seen that look. Yeah. I, I, you know, and the, the degree to which Lindsey Graham made that choice as well, um, you know, it's not lost on me that he may have done it just to make sure that Kavanaugh wasn't the only one performing that stuff. Mm. But it's, it, this is, this, this thing where men get angry because someone's disagreeing with them is being is consistently being encouraged in our political dialogues. It's consistently being encouraged among supporters of uh, of the president and of Kavanaugh's nomination. It's being encouraged as the new normal. This is how that anger and rage is operating intentionally in our culture. Do you have any sense of a healthy way to deal with anger? People are angry about financial stress. People are angry about all sorts of things. Like, what do we do with our anger? Relationships and community. That's what it is. The reason this stuff, the reason so many men are so angry is they they don't have this community of relationships to process challenges in, right? Right. We, we, we don't have, we don't have intimate conversations with anyone. We don't talk about our problems. We don't talk about our challenges. We don't talk about our self-doubts. We don't talk about our sexual proclivities. We don't talk, we don't talk about anything. Mm-hmm. We talk about the, the freaking Los Angeles Rams or whatever <laughs> because we're allowed to talk about that, but we're not allowed to talk about ourselves, 
our challenges in our lives. And the same thing is, is true for women, but I believe that women have, have more robust communities to have conversations in. But the way that we process stress, anger, fear, reactivity is in relationship. And that's the one thing we've been deprived of. Well, I, the, the analogy I give, or the metaphor I give, is you take a dog, you chain it up in the back of the yard alone. It's a social animal. Mm-hmm. Sooner or later, it just starts howling. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing to our sons. Uh, that's what we're doing sis- systemically. That's what we're doing to boys and men in America. And, and men are doing this to each other, and they don't even realize the damage they're doing or the, the reason they feel edgy and angry and frustrated all the time. They don't know why. That this conditioning is so deeply rooted within them that they're actually passing this conditioning on to their own children, their own little boys. And yet they, they, they feel like someone must be at fault. Maybe it's liberals, maybe it's feminists, maybe it's, it's not. It's the culture of manhood is cutting us off from meaningful connection in our lives. And that makes us crazy. Dogs chained up in the back of the yard. Hmm. Hmm. Do you organize like affinity groups for men? Do you cultivate a social circle on purpose? Like what steps do men take if they know they need this kind of community? They know they need this kind of conversation. Yeah. Where do they I, start? I, I went to the Mankind Project because it is a robust global organization. These guys are everywhere. They're all doing the work. Um, I, I cannot, to this day, connect all that successfully with men in my day-to-day life uh-huh. because there is still an underlying we, – we don't have the tools to do this. And I have several close friends who I have intentionally – begun to have regular phone calls with to talk through stuff because they've they've signaled that they're willing to do this mm-hmm. a couple of them are in, from inside the mankind project a couple are not but that sense of being embraced and held and connected that that sort of echo of our childhoods of the friendships we had that were so meaningful to us mm-hmm. they're lost to us now many of us and and me included it's very difficult to find that kind of joy with other men because uh, and, and it takes a concentrated, consistent effort to grow that in your social circle. Mm-hmm. But it's I think a lot of us grieve for it, for the loss of it. And we don't even know why it, it we lost it. Mm. Wow. Well, the rebuilding starts now. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. I will link up to many articles in the show notes page. Um, I read your work consistently and always find it wise and comforting and really visionary. Um, and I think maybe that's the work we all need to start double downing on. <laughs> double down. <laughs> Is that a word? Double, um, <laughs> double down. We're going to double down. Yes. Yeah. We're going to double down on visioning the future and what this might look like for our children and our children's children. So thank yeah. you for doing this work. Well, I, if, I, if I can say anything to men at this point, I would say that, um, that we've been tricked into believing we don't want connection, that no one else wants it, that we alone are, are, are the anomaly. But look around you and look into the eyes of the men around you and you will see guys who are searching too. 
take the risk, have the courage to connect, have the courage to connect with the, the, the men in your life and then take a step further and have the courage to, um, to do what you know is right in terms of creating a fairer, more equal world uh, for women as well. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are frightening things for men to take on. We've been taught, conditioned, not to talk about these things, not to engage this stuff. It's a shaming moment when we're called out for doing it, but we have to push through that sense of fear and have the courage to create the change that'll make lives better for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mark Green, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you. (laughs) All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know it was rich and dense and intense, but I know you all are brilliant thinkers. And I would love to know what you think about this episode. Come on over to patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics. Join us for as little as a dollar a month and be in conversation with us about this episode and all of our episodes. You'll get an ad-free podcast stream, bonus episodes, bonus resources, and more. Patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics. We love to hear from you. We wish you well. It is an intense week for everyone, especially for my fellow survivors out there. I hope you are taking exquisite care of yourself and loving yourself so fully. Remember that we have the free survivors toolkit over at pleasuremechanics.com. Click on the online courses button and you'll see the survivors toolkit. It is a collection of resources and it is absolutely free with an option to donate, but it is my love letter, my offering to fellow survivors who are looking to reclaim sexual pleasure in the world and reclaim sexual agency. All right. I am Chris from pleasuremechanics.com signing off till next week. We love you. We are here for you. We are all in this together. Let us move forward with big visions of what we can create together as the human species. Let us live into our highest vision together. I'm Chris from pleasuremechanics.com wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.